It's Easter, right? Jesus is alive. It's such a special day that the reality is, I mean, I even thought about what I was going to wear to church today. I never do that if, you, if I could get away with a t-shirt and jeans. I picked a shirt that looks like an Easter egg to commemorate the day. Um, but it's, it's, it's a special day, right? It's a, a special day in the, in the year of a Christian's life. It's a special day in the calendar of the church. Um, and it's special enough that we wanted to slow down and just remember that the foundation of what makes this so special is the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, the reason that we're still here remembering communion, the reason that we show up this morning to, to celebrate is because Jesus is alive. He is still ruling and reigning on his eternal throne today, just as much as he was then. And even as that song stated, even as it, it appeared that that darkness was going to win. This was all part of the plan. God had been intending it, planning it all along. In fact, that's the at the end of that passage I read. Behold, or just before he mentions the the um, betrayal that's coming, he says that the, the Son of Man is is going as it's been determined. This is and always has been the plan. And we're going to focus on that passage, but I want to focus in on one particular. Verse, one particular phrase really of that passage, Luke 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after he'd eaten, saying, or after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus wasn't just initiating a new tradition for his people to observe, although this is a tradition that would be done in remembrance of him. But he was inaugurating a new covenant. Now remember, especially for those that are here, maybe you haven't been with us, the, the definition of a covenant is much more than just a contract. Uh, you, you can enter into a contract with a bank who cares nothing for you, who doesn't know you, wants nothing to do with you. They just want you to repay the money that you borrowed from them. This is a covenant. This is a, a binding promise between covenant partners. There's promises and expectations given, promises made, especially in the covenants with God, promises made by him that bind him to fulfill them and expectations on the partners that he enters into covenant with. So now Jesus comes and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He is using a language that has been used by the prophets that have gone before him that draw our attention to a new work that is about to be accomplished, a prophecy that is about to be fulfilled. The work that was going to happen, the the work that Jesus was going to initiate, he had come to die, to inaugurate, to establish this covenant, but the reality is, is that if he were still dead, if we could walk to the place where his body lay, if, if we could go to his tomb and his body be there, there would be no reason to continue to celebrate. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the, the, the New Testament makes it clear that this covenant stands, and this covenant is one that we would give ourselves to, that we would trust, entrust ourselves to, because our Savior, our Lord, the eternal covenant, uh, this covenant is, is held fast by an eternal covenant partner. In fact, that drives us to the point, the, the point that I'm going to build out the rest of this sermon, in Christ... God, the creator and covenant maker, has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. In Christ, God, the creator and covenant maker, has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. 
Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at, we're going to break down the new covenant in a number of different ways. We're going to look at it prophesied. We're going to look at it being the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we're even going to look at it in three weeks from now, the the covenant people, the new covenant people. Today, (laughs) on this Easter morning, what better thing could we do than to stop and look at the one who serves as our covenant representative, our covenant head, our, the, the one who represents his people before our God and who represents our God to his people, who God sent to serve as the one who would always be faithful in the covenant, to, to give to himself on our behalf a covenant partner who would always live up to his side of the bargain, something none of us could ever do, something that was never done before. The, 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 the Old Testament, as, as it ends, it doesn't end with resolution, right? It's not like we come to the end of the Old Testament and all of a sudden everybody feels great and everything's solved and all the answers are there. No, God just goes silent. In fact, there's 400 years between the, the close of the old and the, the opening of the new of silence with this tension, these promises that had been made going all the way back When God created and and mankind fell and and, and God entered into covenant and made promises with them and and, and he tells them, even in the the statement of the curse, even in in the proclamation of judgment against the enemy, he says, he makes the promise, by the seed of the woman, by the offspring of the woman, I am going to send one who is going to crush your head. He he says to, to Abraham, By your seed, by your offspring, I am going to bless all nations. And he says to David, by your offspring, by your seed, I am going to establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And we come to the end of the New Testament, or the end of the Old Testament, and the prophets have prophesied, and the and and the and the Psalms have been assembled, and, and everyone's sung and prayed and pled. And God is silent for 400 years until he shows up and begins to speak first through angels, then through the prophet John the Baptist, the last old covenant prophet, and then the only new covenant prophet, Jesus. In Christ, God the creator, the one who said, let there be light, the one who formed and filled the earth who entered into and continued to enter into covenants with people in spite of our sin, has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. Everyone that's gone before has failed. Adam failed. Noah failed. Like, oh, it's great. He built an ark and he got through and his family's safe. And then what happens? I love it a couple weeks ago, not a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago when when Pastor Dave is talking about Noah coming, sin, sin comes off the ark because Noah came off the ark, right? Like sin re, re, remained in the world because people remained in the world. It, it was on the ark and it came off the ark and the beautiful, beautiful phrase, it stuck with me, but he failed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all failed. Moses, Israel, and her priests all failed. David, Solomon, and all their sons failed. Not looking good, but God has a plan. He's going to send this faithful covenant partner, and he does. And this faithful covenant partner 
is going to obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be hung, hung among criminals that through his death he might then rise and give us all the reason we need to celebrate. But I want you to see, I want you to see that this was not an afterthought. It was part of the plan. It was all part of the plan. In fact, the book of Luke uniquely, I, I, I think you could probably see this in all of them, but I think there's a unique way because he specifically calls out the covenant work in the midst of the, the Lord's Supper. I think there's a unique way in which as he set forward to set out to, to develop a, 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 a trustworthy and ordered account of the life of Jesus, I think there's a unique way in which we can see his gospel account as one emphasizing the inauguration of the new covenant. So we're actually going to walk all the way through that. We're going to get an overview of the whole book of Luke today. It won't take us as long as you might imagine, but we are going to be here looking at it, starting all the way back at the beginning, seeing how Jesus serves as this faithful covenant partner and faithful and trustworthy covenant representative. First, Jesus resisted the enemy rather than surrender to him. Jesus resisted the enemy rather than surrender to him. Now, you might remember Adam and Eve didn't fare so well, right? The enemy enters the garden, and, oh, man, that fruit looks good, and it's going to make me wise, and I, well, why wouldn't I want to eat it? I, I want to be like God. Now, Luke 4, 1, 13, 1 through 13 tells the story. Right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and after he's been there for 40 days, it's almost like Captain Obvious stating the, stating the uh, well, the obvious. <laughs> he is hungry. He's fasted for 40 days. I mean, that's, yeah, he's hungry. We, I mean, what's it like to, to miss a meal? We call it fasting when we've not eaten overnight, you know? We're going to break our fast every morning. 40 days and nights. He's hungry. And the enemy shows up, Satan shows up, and he tempts him with food. Sound familiar? Hey, 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 I know you're hungry. This time it was a, it was a, a challenge to make bread and, and not necessarily fruit, but, but it's food all the same. This time it, it's at a point of weakness and scarcity instead of a garden of abundance. Hey, all of these trees are yours except this one. Right? There's abundance. There's, there's just clear blessing. It's all yours. A point of strength. Sin hadn't entered the world. There was no nature driving them to sin. So here Jesus is at a point of weakness and scarcity instead of abundance and power. But he still responded with the truth of God to expose the lies of the enemy. The enemy tempts Jesus with an alternate path to glory in the same way that he did it with Adam and Eve. Hey, if you'll eat this fruit, you know, you'll be like God. It's shocking, it's striking when you stop and think about it. They were created in the image of God, in His likeness. They were created. They were already like God. But it's almost as if, wait a minute, there's more we can be like Him? There's more? There's something He's withholding? There's something we can have? A, a, a path to glory that He hasn't made known to us? So He brings Jesus to the top of a mountain so He can see all the kingdoms of the earth. Hey, if you'll just bow to me, I will give you authority over all of this. I will let you reign. You will be in charge of it all. You can have it all. You just got to bow to me. And still Jesus responds with truth. 
to expose the enemy's lies. You worship God alone. And the enemy tempts Jesus with God's trustworthiness. You might remember he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say you'll die? You won't die. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, you know, so so Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple. You know, hey, um, his word says he's going to protect you. Go ahead and jump. His angels will come and protect you. Nothing will happen. Is he really trustworthy? Does his word really say, is is it really a trustworthy statement that he'll protect you? At every point, Jesus confronted the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word, and he did what no other covenant partner had done. Adam and Eve didn't do it. Noah didn't do it. Abraham didn't do it. Uh, uh, Moses and Israel didn't do it. David didn't do it. But Jesus did. He did not equivocate. He did not surrender. He stood strong with the truth of God's word in our place as our representative, but more than that, a faithful covenant partner. See, this is what God expects in his covenants with his people. The same covenant faithfulness being returned to him that he's expressing from himself. With perfect fulfillment and satisfaction, Jesus is returning that covenant faithfulness back to our God in heaven. He did what no other covenant partner has done or could do. (laughs) And this is why we want him representing us before him. This is why we want Jesus representing us before God. This one's mine. This one's mine. I, I, I took care of their issues. I stood in their place. In me, this one is a faithful covenant partner. You and me, us, his people, counted as faithful covenant partners to God because of what Jesus has done. And Luke tells us then that Jesus came as the promised prophet, priest, and king. The promised prophet, priest, and king. He opens the book with, I'm going I'm to write an orderly account of Jesus' life and he's addressing it to, to someone called Theophilus. And some people suggest that that's a person. Some people suggest that that is uh, representative of a group of people or a ruler. Um, but, but regardless of, of, of really whether, whether it's, uh, well, who it is, Luke's point is the same. It says it's as important for us to see that there's an orderly and trustworthy account being established. And in chapters 1 through 4, Luke points out that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I would, I would encourage you, write these passages down, and then you go read Luke and see if this doesn't hold true. Ch- chapters 1 through 4, Jesus is established by Luke as the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, right? Like he shows that clearly as, as he walks through uh, uh, the prophet that's going to come and, and, and prepare the way for Jesus, Jesus' mir- miraculous virgin birth. And even, even him going into the temple, the, the one uh, story we get from his childhood, going into the temple and teaching the, the, the religious leaders of the day, even as a child, and when his parents find him, what do they say? What does he say? Well, where'd you expect me to be? I'm, in, I'm about my father's business. I'm in my father's house doing what I've been told to do. Chapters 1 through 4. Then chapters 4 through 9, there's a shift. 
And they begin to show us that Jesus is a prophet. If you, if you pay attention to the flow of Luke, you see these miracles, just profound miracles being accomplished. And so as the, as the, uh, as, as the chapters progress, we come to chapter 7 where Jesus has just raised a, a widow's son. So, so the, 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 boy, or the young man is raised, and, and, and this is how people respond in Luke 7, 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And then just a couple of chapters later, when, when Jesus is, has been doing his work and performing miracles, and he, he says to his apostles, he says, Hey, who do people say I am? And they wrestle with it. They, they, they say, Hey, some people say you are Elijah. Some people say you're the great pro- one of the old prophets that had been raised, from, raised up from, from the dead. They, they saw him as a prophet. And then at the end of chapter 9, it says that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going he, to quit working in the north, and he's going to move to Jerusalem. He sets his face to Jerusalem, and in chapter 10, there's a distinct shift in the, in the book of Luke. In fact, there's the, the, the shift and the turn, it, everything changes. There no longer is a strong focus on his miracles, but his teaching is brought front and center. And his teaching is on his kingdom. He's not referred to as a prophet again. Now, only in those first nine chapters is there any mention of Jesus being a prophet. In chapters 10 through 19, the teaching of the kingdom, and then when he comes into Jerusalem... Luke 19, 37 through 38, it, it shows us that Jesus is going to be received as a king. As he was drawing near, already, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. And this is not just the 12. This is not just the, the ones that were close. This was not just the women that, that were alongside the apostles. And this is the multitude, right? So we see three groups in, in the book of Luke. We see those who are close to him all the way out to the multitude. This mass following that were following him from a distance or had some interaction with him. Or were at least listening to him. Already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we see the prophet. We see him received as a king. They begin, they begin to realize, well, wait a minute. This isn't just a prophet. This is a king. He's the one with authority. He's going to reign in God's, uh, and, and, and bestow God's authority upon us. But then once he gets into Jerusalem, chapters 19 through 21, you know what happens? He doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't sit on the throne. He immediately goes into the temple and he clears it. And he's, in, in, in essence, he sanctifies it. He cleanses it. And then over the course of 19 through 21, really into the beginning of chapter 21, we see him begin to confront the religious leaders of the day. You are a farce. Your religion is self-righteous and fake. You are hypocrites. You have no real authority. This is fake. And he unseats them and then teaches in the temple as God's priest. And then, and then we see, as, as we begin to think through all that he's doing, as we, we, we can begin to see, Jesus 
And he, he, he's going to say, I'm a, this is the blood of my new covenant, the, the blood of the new covenant. We see that he is going to fulfill every office of covenant. He is going to be the prophet who speaks the truth. He is going to be the priest who, who, who exemplifies God's gracious glory. And he is going to be the king who rules forever. And if you remember back when we started all the way back in Genesis, and we talked about us being image bearers, representatives and reflections, right? That's the, the way we've talked about it. That we reflect God's glory and we represent his authority. We reflect his glory. We are his priests. We, we represent his authority. We are his kings. To rule and subdue. That was the commands. And then we see that expressed. Abraham was to do the same thing. Noah was to do the same thing. Abraham was to do the same thing. Moses, as the, as the representative before Israel. And Israel as a nation were to be a kingdom of priests. Jesus is going to do what none of them could do. The people he came to would reject him because they wanted the glory. They wanted to, to stand out. They wanted the power. They wanted to exercise it. They wanted to define what God's truth according to their standard and their view was. And so they devised a plan to kill him. Instead of listen, instead of repent, instead of relent from what they were doing, they devised a plan to kill him. And that brings us to Luke 24 or 22, where Jesus gave himself as the Passover lamb. The faithful covenant partner, the one who, who would not surrender to the enemy's plans or the enemy's devices, the enemy's temptation. The one who would serve as the eternal prophet, the, the eternal priest, and the eternal king gave himself as the Passover lamb. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I've longed for this. I've looked forward to this. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's inaugurated today, but it's not completed today. And, 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 and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take it, this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you. From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, that, that is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the table of him, the hand of him. Who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. It's striking. Who could do this? Which one of you is going to do this? Well, let's just be honest. Haven't we all? Like, haven't we rejected him? Haven't we betrayed him? Haven't we been silent about him when we should have spoken? Haven't we followed Peter's example and, and denied that we even know him, even if not by words, but by our life at times? No, we're not, we're not as bad as Judas, right? Like, we don't run to the temple and ask for 30 coins of silver. We would never do that. 
Brothers and sisters, we need him to be our Passover lamb. See, no longer would would, would a sacrifice be necessary. His his life would be given as the final sacrifice to inaugurate the new covenant, to, to, to sufficiently provide sacrifice for the sins of his people, to effectively atone their sins. No longer would a sacrifice need to be offered, just remembered. You get it, right? These are not altars. We didn't come to altars. We didn't set bread on altars and juice on altars. We're not sacrificing him today. We're just remembering him. Communion is a reminder that we are all sinners who need a Savior. Every one of us are as guilty as Judas. Every one of us need to be saved. We cannot be a faithful covenant partner. Communion is a reminder that salvation has been made available through Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's come to do what no one else could do. He is the sinless Savior. He is the innocent King. Communion is a reminder of the great cost of our salvation. God takes sin so seriously that He doesn't just sweep it under a rug. He doesn't just pretend it doesn't exist. But He pays for it with the precious blood of His own Son. Communion is a reminder to give thanks for what Jesus has provided us, just as we see him doing. Thank you. Giving thanks for bread, giving thanks for juice, giving thanks for what it represents. Communion, I I can't move on from that. Man, there's such a way in a world filled with ambition. I'm not trying to squash every ambition. Don't, 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 Don't hear that in this. But in a world that's so filled with ambition that there is so little peace and contentment where we're all striving to achieve the next thing that doesn't bring satisfaction, could it simply be that we aren't grateful? You see, I think gratitude, I I think gratitude comes from a place, true gratitude, from a place of real satisfaction, real appreciation. I've used this illustration here before. You probably will remember it. The, the picture I always tend to get, I don't know why this is it. It's not even the right holiday, but it's the picture of Ralphie in a Christmas story standing at the top of the stairs in a pink bunny suit that he's not happy about at all. He's completely dissatisfied with this present he's been given. So he's not grateful. Could it be that we're always striving for something else, that next new thing, that next achievement, that next goal, that next trying to accomplish something, simply because we are not grateful for what God has done? Communion is a reminder that God will always fulfill his promises. These are promises that extend all the way back to the creation. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the enemy. The seed of Abraham is going to bless all nations. The seed of David is going to sit on a throne forever. And here he is, prophet, priest, and king. Come to give himself as that final sacrifice, sufficient and effective to do the work, to fulfill the promises that have been made. 
Communion is a reminder that one day we will feast with Jesus. I love that he puts this in there. This is not the last time that we're going to gather with our Savior and, and celebrate and eat. There's a feast waiting for us. There's a feast to look forward to. This isn't just a memorial. It's a reminder to look forward to the eternal day that we stand in his presence and see him face to face and sit at his table and drink his wine and eat his bread and celebrate once and for all to see every tear wiped away and every, every sin gone. All, only glory where death is no more. Seated at his table, the one that he paid our price to sit at. Communion is a reminder of that. And finally, it would be remiss to say, to not point out that communion is a reminder that in Christ, God has provided a faithful covenant partner who would accomplish these things, who would do this work, and who would represent us to God as a representative for us, but would represent God to us because if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. If we know him, we know God. There is no distinction to be made. At least not in that sense. But if that were the end of the story, this is all for nothing. There's no covenant to hope in because Jesus couldn't be eternally faithful. And Jesus couldn't be an eternal ruler. And that's why Luke doesn't end the story here. But he presses forward. We see Jesus crucified. We see Jesus put in the ground. And then we see Jesus raised from the grave. Jesus conquered death and now reigns eternally. Luke 24, 1 through 9. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. These are the women that had been following Jesus. They, they were so distraught that the burial had happened so quickly. They were distraught and they wanted to prepare his body. They wanted to honor the memory of Jesus they wanted to prepare it properly and, and wrap it correctly and, and, and put it, fill, fill the wrappings with spices in, in the way it was supposed to happen. But they get there, verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Could you just imagine what's on? Like, what do you think at that point? I, what happened? Where is he? While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We know that these are angels. And as they were frightened, which is the, that, that's the normal response to angels, right? When someone eternal shows up and light of heaven shines into this earth, no one stands up bold and puffs their chest up. They, everyone falls on their face. He looks away. They, they, they're afraid. They were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you in a graveyard when you should be looking for your king on his throne? Why are you in a graveyard when he's up walking around in the streets? Why are you looking for the dead among, or the living among the dead? He's alive. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Are you surprised by this? He's been telling you it's coming. He's told you to expect it and you didn't understand it. You didn't get it. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Over and over he had prepared his disciples for this. Over and over he had sought to make them ready for this. But now they remembered his words and returning from the tomb they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest 
Notice it's not the 12. Judas isn't there. But to the 11, the apostles, and to all the rest of his closest followers. Now the story goes that people didn't believe him. They had to see it for themselves. Isn't it just like us? That's too hard to believe. A man comes back from the dead. Come on! People don't come back from the dead. They'd seen it with their own eyes. Jesus had raised dead people. It just doesn't happen. Too hard to imagine. But he had been telling them, I am going to do this. <laughs> and now his resurrection demonstrates to us, once and for all, he is done and is doing what no one else could have done. Well, you can't go there because the flood has erased it. But you know what happened to Adam and Noah? Somewhere their bodies have long ago rotted in the ground. You know what happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know what happened to David? You know what happened to Moses? You know what happened to Solomon? Their graves that mark the place that they died. But Jesus reigns forever, eternally sitting on a throne from which he reigns forever as our representative, as God's representative to us, as our representative to God, as God's faithful covenant partner in who we, even now today, 2,000 years later, can be bound in covenant to God through him. Jesus conquered death and now reigns eternally Jesus fulfilled and was the point of all God's previous covenants. As we come to read further about the, the, the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, you probably are familiar with the story on the road to Emmaus where there's two, two of Jesus' followers, Cleopas and another man that's not named, and, and they're walking along talking about all that's happened, and they pass a man. I don't know, I kind of imagine him leaned up against a tree, you know, got a foot up, maybe a straw of grass hanging out of his mouth, and they pass by just talking about what's going on, and he kind of walks up along and says, what are you guys talking about? You don't know what's going on? Well, he, Jesus, they don't recognize him. Jesus walks alongside him and it says this, Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, only Jesus gets away with saying things as boldly to people. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He looks back at the Old Testament. He says, look, let me just show you. I'm a better Moses. Let, let me just show you. I'm a better David. And they still don't get it. It's not until they sit down with him and he breaks bread. And in the breaking of the bread, something strikes them. And they see and he disappears. And they're like, that was Jesus. We are in his presence. Didn't we? Aren't our hearts burning within, within us? Well, weren't we just the, the fire being stoked as he explained from the scriptures? But we, we, what's crazy about this, we don't wait to the end of Luke to find out that Jesus has been the point of all the scriptures. 
we actually learn at the very beginning of Luke that this was always God's plan. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 through 75. So Zechariah is John the Baptist's dad. Zechariah was a high priest, or was a priest, and it was his turn to go into the temple and do the, to offer the, the sacrifice or to, to light the um, incense. And he goes in, and angel Gabriel shows up and says to him, hey, you're going to be a parent, and you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. And he's like, come on. How's this going to happen? We're old. He says, oh, you're going to have a kid, but you're not going to get to speak till that kid's born because you didn't believe. So he knows it, but he comes out and he can't say a word. John the Baptist is eventually born. He makes signs and makes clear that his name is to be John because that's what Gabriel had told him. And the very first words he speaks after the birth of his son are this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Let me just point out, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is drawing on covenant language. I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Oh, oh, oh. remember the covenant that he made with David? I'm going to put someone on your throne forever. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, As he spoke by the mouth of holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. If they'd just been listening, if they'd just been paying attention, They'd recognize. They'd see John the Baptist has been sent to prepare the way. In fact, as the the song goes on, he he turns and begins to speak about his son, John the Baptist. You are going to prepare the way for God Almighty. But this was all God's work coming to fulfillment. Little did Zechariah know that he was prophesying himself, that he had become not just a priest, but a prophet. Not just about another prophet to come, but the prophet, the priest, the king who would offer himself as the final sacrifice that by his death, our sins could be forgiven. And and then through his resurrection, this new covenant that God would establish through him would truly become an eternal, everlasting covenant. Because Jesus, not only in his life before the cross was he faithful, but he is eternally faithful. Not only in his life before the crucifixion did he represent God to us and us to God, but he is still eternally representing us to God and God to us. In Christ, God the creator and covenant maker has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. Now, Many of you know him. Many of you follow him. Many of you have given your life and devoted your life to to him, to entrust yourself to his grace and power, to devote yourself to his glory, to faithfully obey obey his authority. Many of you have done that. And that's why you showed up this morning, to celebrate your Savior, to celebrate the faithful covenant partner. But there may be some of you that 
like all these people that Jesus set in front of, have been playing a game. It's all fake. It's hypocrisy. What are you going to say when you face God the Creator? Look at these things I did for you. Look at the way I obeyed you. Look at the work that I did in your name. As gently as I can, I want to remove from you any idea that you can be a faithful covenant partner. You cannot repent of your self-righteousness and entrust yourself to him. And then there might be some of you that aren't even playing. The day God saved me, I showed up in church to just impress a girl. And he met me there, and I walked in that church dead, and I walked out of that church alive. I wasn't playing a game. I was just jumping through a hoop, trying to pretend, uh, trying to convince somebody. Well, I guess I was playing a game, just not a religious one. <laughs> so sad. But that's where the faithful covenant partner took my place and said, hey, Father, this one's mine. Repent of your sin and entrust yourself to him. He is, always has been, and always will be the only way. Let's pray.